You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. This is the third and final episode of a three-part series where I've been reviewing the book, The Very Good Gospel by Lisa Sharon Harper. I thought that I was done, <laughs> but I keep getting on different tracks, and uh, and hopefully this is helpful for you all uh, as I go through them um, somewhat slowly and also uh, in some ways, sometimes I, I try to repeat myself to make a point like five different ways so that it's more understandable. So I'm hoping that that's been helpful for you all. I want to finish up with uh, an application here of what we've already gone over. So just to, to quickly review, we talked about how Lisa Sharon Harper adds law to grace, social justice infused law. She combines man's actions uh, p- with political activism, really political activist actions with the gospel and says that's the gospel. And then in that manipulative technique that she uses where Christians are now thinking they have to do some kind of BLM march or something to be truly Christians and have the gospel, she uh, then places blame and the original sin on this systemic impersonal hegemony of, of sorts that exists and is located in Western culture and in America in particular. And that this that's where sin's coming from. And that can be the disparities that exist, the problems that exist, even down to things like gaining weight in some scenarios and divorces and personal choices people make. It, it's the result of this systemic sin that exists. And so uh, she gives some biblical examples. She thinks supports that, but she has to take things out of context or impose things upon the text. What we're going to talk about today is, is getting more into the nitty-gritty. We're going to talk about how this works, how she takes the gospel and in with specific different social issues, uh, how, she, uh, how, how she tries to compare and contrast the true gospel that she's promoting, the thick gospel, she calls it, with the thin, inadequate gospel. So here we go, the divided gospel. The inadequate gospel to address the need for more free labor, slave owners began breeding their own slaves. The inadequate gospel would be okay with that. That's in her mind. Um, now, I would say Christian ethics <laughs> is a different story here, but the inadequate gospel would be okay with this. This is the gospel response. She says, and when they wiped away their tears and opened their eyes, uh, Finney, the great um, uh, really revivalist of the Second Great Awakening, uh, Charles Finney, thrust a pen into their hands and pointed them to sign up sheets for the abolitionist movement. This is what it meant to be an evangelical Christian in the 1800s. So what she's saying is that 
uh, to be an evangelical Christian meant you would be against slavery. That's what you had to do. Now, we just got done with this section last time talking about how she said, wait a minute, it was all these Christians who were supporting slavery. So she blames them and says that's America's sin, but then she turns around and says, actually, no evangelical Christians uh, were against slavery. That's what it meant to be an evangelical Christian. Well, which is it, right? And this is one of the contradictions you see in this book. Is she just goes back and forth. You know, which is it? Which so so that's authentic Christianity. So that's the thick gospel, I guess. Those are the people who really had it, but the others must have had a deficient gospel. So if if you uh, were a, a slave master, or if you put up with slavery, or if you just failed to join the abolitionist movement, then you didn't have the true gospel. Um, she the inadequate gospel. Workers were moving through a systemic assembly line that led to destitution. Well, what was the gospel response to this? The inadequate gospel would have said, that's fine, I guess. The gospel response is to combat such widespread injustice, Rauschenbusch, this is the founder of the social gospel, Walter Rauschenbusch, called the church to return to the scriptures. The scriptures are not silent on structural and systemic sin. The Bible overflows with God's response to poverty, oppression, and governance. Uh and then we have another inadequate gospel. Fundamentalist Christians argue that the gospel was about one thing only, Christ crucified as payment for our individual sins. Thus began the church's own civil war, which notably took place within white American churches in the 1940s. A subset of the fundamentalist movement became known as evangelicals, named after the 19th century movement. However, they didn't adopt the early movement's expansive call for personal and structural repentance. Instead, they maintained a strict fundamentalist focus on personal repentance from personal imperfection, which led to personal salvation. So that's the problem, ultimately. You focus too much on that personal salvation, that repentance from sin uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone, that distracts you from the other, the, the important things, which are uh, joining uh, the causes, social justice causes. And so to her, Charles Finney's a hero, Walter Rauschenbusch is a hero. These are the good guys, the guys that got Christianity right. And it's those fundamentalists and evangelicals who have gotten Christianity wrong. So this is how she applies it. Now, here's some other examples that she gives later in the book that I thought I wanted to incorporate here as well. When it comes to the environment, she says that uh, the United States has failed to take a leading role to curb global practices that cause climate change. Another great indicator of the presence of unjust environmental policies is the presence of racial and economic inequity with regard to land use, air and water quality, and food distribution. The gospel response, what would that be? Well, the kingdom of God will bring the restoration of all creation. The first requirement of reconciliation with the land is humility. We must support the Paris Agreement, the Paris Climate Agreement and press our federal, state, and local legislators to find innovative ways to abide by it. Uh, she quotes someone named Woodley, who describes the Native American Harmony Way, a practice of respect for all creation and a web of relationships that connects us. So who gets it right? The Native Americans get it right. The Paris Climate Agreements gets it right. Uh, we have to, th this is part of bringing the kingdom of God in. This is her idea of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God will bring restoration to creation. How? Well, the Paris Climate Agreement. Well, that means, I guess, the people who crafted that, are they part of the kingdom of God? See, this is where it gets really awkward. This is where there's all this tension, and, and it doesn't make any sense. How in the world can you have pagans, people who aren't Christians at all, in any way, shape, or form? Now, they're part of somehow bringing in the kingdom of God. They're part of bringing in the gospel. They're part. This is the very good gospel, supporting the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, the Native American Harmony Way, apparently. Pagan religions, part of the good gospel, somehow. Do you see the problem here? Can you see how this is syncretizing with other religions? Can you see how this is 
ecumenicizing. Maybe I'm inventing my own word. Ecumenicizing? <laughs> it's be making things more ecumenical. Uh, so on the environment, that, that would be the gospel response. So if you're a Christian and you want to apply the gospel, you want to believe the very good gospel and support it in this endeavor, that's what you're going to do. How about about uh, on gender roles? Here's the inadequate gospel. She says, I served on a worship team leader for weekly chapters, meetings in a conservative evangelical college ministry. A male staff member insisted that I needed to follow him. She said, tears trickled down my face as I sang backup that night and for the rest of my senior year because I'm a woman. That was my first direct personal encounter with the theology of male dominance. Patriarchal interpretations of scripture fail to start at the beginning. They start after the fall in Genesis 3. The text tells us that rather than creating a man first, God created a human being who, in the beginning, had no distinct gender. On the first point, God did not give the command to a guy named Adam. God gave the command to a human being who comprised both male and female. Perhaps, she says again, it's a symptom of the culture of patriarchy that thrives within church cultures and structures, a male-dominated staff teams, male-dominated pastoral teams, and structural hierarchies that find few, if any, women in public leadership perpetuated male-dominated perspectives. She says again, the problem with lifting these quotes out of context and making them serve as a doctrinal tenet of the church, and, and she's talking about Paul's admonition, the Apostle Paul, when he said, he did not permit a woman to teach. He says the problem with, with taking that is that Paul did not write them as doctrine. He wrote the statements as context-specific advice to help two churches deal with issues arising with their communities. He drew on his own leadership traditions, shaped by culture and personal preference. So here we have the destruction of all scripture, because basically Paul is just also a victim of the hegemony in which he lived, which hated women apparently, and oppressed them. And so Paul is... In the Holy Scripture, which is inspired by God, apparently, uh, Paul is committing errors. He's giving context-specific advice that arise from his own personal preference. So this isn't, you can see the attack on the Word of God now. And what other thing can we do that with? You know, how about that whole thing about the Ten Commandments saying, thou shalt not steal? Maybe that was just context-specific, shaped by culture and personal preference. I mean, why not? I mean, this is just your blank check to destroy all of Scripture right here. But the inadequate gospel is a gospel that doesn't challenge these things, that, that is okay with these hierarchies, and, and even might think they're biblical. Paul, Paul put hierarchies in there. Uh, it, only men can be pastors. Well, you know, this, she's saying that that's wrong. And she's upset when she, you know, couldn't be the, she cries about not being able to be the head person in leading uh, worship music. Uh, because of the group that she was in and how, I guess, their theology was, you know, you need a male leader. And and, and that's uh, that reflects more on her, I think, than it does the scripture. Uh, and, and so her thing is that the gospel needs to somehow answer this, create a remedy for this, uh, change the scenario, challenge the hegemony, deconstruct, reconstruct, so that we won't have these uh, inadequacies and disparities. So here's the gospel response. Let me read for you a few quotes. She says, At the heart of the very good news of the gospel is the reversal of the fall. With that reversal, Jesus' death and resurrection paved the way for patriarchy to be crushed. She says, Listen to the stories of women. A few months ago, I sat in a room with evangelical men and women leaders of color aware of the male-dominated cultures of both evangelicalism and communities of color. 
The leaders in the group set aside time for the women to share stories of subjugation and healing within the evangelical church. Each of us took three minutes to share our story. After each woman had spoken, the men asked clarifying questions. Men's mouths dropped as they realized they had witnessed subjugation and not been aware of it. They had systemically or structurally participated in the dismissal of the image of God in their sisters, and they had been party a party to injustice, even while looking for justice. She says um, men should listen to stories of women, lament, confess, and repent. And she also says... Uh, that someone had given given her good advice, which was, Lisa, you will flourish when you stop apologizing for your power and live fully into the woman God created you to be. So here's here's the deal. Women should celebrate their power. Women should not apologize for it. Women should have power. Men need to be brought down a few rungs. Men need to sit down, shut up, and listen. There's the standpoint theory. Uh, they ha don't have access into the information on oppression that a woman will be able to share because a woman is experiencing that oppression. And it's not about opening your Bible and thinking through what does God want us to do in these situations. Uh, it's instead about platforming women and making them the authority on how they ought to be treated and platformed and whether or not hierarchies ought to exist within the church or in, in marriages, perhaps even for that matter, or in worship leading or any of that. It's women become the authority. It's, it's that the idea that the victim in this case, the, according to the sociologist, the one who's the victim is going to be the one uh, to um, have the solution for solving that victimhood. So this is total attack on the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture. The Word of God is not sufficient, and it's, even, it's not even true necessarily because it could just be arising from personal preference, uh, the authors of Scripture. So why even be a Christian? That's one of my questions I have. Why even be a Christian? If, if, this is the way, if this is the way that the gospel is supposed to handle things, is we just knock down men a few rungs and they just have to shut up and listen and women should celebrate their power, then... If that's what the gospel is about, if that's what build the kingdom of God's about, and and scripture can't be a guide for us on these things, why even go to church? Why even open the scripture? Why even, what's the point of any of it? It sounds like the gospel is just something you can totally have without any knowledge of the Bible or God. I mean, there's plenty of people that will give you that same advice who have no knowledge of Christianity. So... This is what how the very good gospel uh, applies to gender roles. How about on the issue of racial disparities? The inadequate gospel. Let's read a few quotes. The outcomes of America's drug wars on African-American men were well documented by Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow, which I've talked about this before, which is, is a critical race theory book and relies on critical race theorists to uh, make the arguments that it makes. I write about this in uh, my response to Phil Vischer in Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict, which you can get on worldviewconversation.com. Uh, she also says the race is about power in biblical terms, dominion. As a political construct, race was created by humans to determine who can exercise power within a governing structure and to guide decisions regarding how to allocate resources. Racial categories do change over time, but only as governments refine language. That's just not true. It's overly simplistic. It is... She's making it out like the very term race was this categorization invented for the purpose of oppressing people. It's true that people have been oppressed along racial lines, but it's not true that the very term and the designation uh, was in the age of exploration was created for that purpose. It was just a way of looking at another people group and saying they're different. 
they come from a different place, they practice, they have different customs, they look differently, their genetics are different. So that that was all it was. Uh, but she's making she, she's buying into the critical race theory definition of race here. Uh, the newly formed United States of America, she says, enacted the racialization of power. Congress passed the Three-Fifths Compromise, which increased the number of members in the House of Representatives who represented districts in the slave states. Uh, well, it didn't necessarily increase them. It just didn't decrease them to not counting slaves at all in their representation. And this was at a time, of course, when women could not uh, vote uh, in, in, in many areas, at least. And, um, and then also, obviously, children can't vote. And so it was for purposes of representation. It, it, it She's oversimplifying it once again, but uh, let's go to the next one. She says, why does the federal government ask for the nations of origin for Asian and Latino people? And, and she goes through a whole list of different minority groups. And she says, why do they ask on the national census whether or not you're white? And she says, the reason is because in the United States, whiteness is the centerpiece around which all else revolves. That was and is intentional. She says in 1975, Benjamin Franklin argued uh, to the British, that due to shrinking percentage of white people on earth, America should be kept an exclusively Anglo-Saxon colony to protect the race. Now, I will just point out, if he's saying Anglo-Saxon colony, that means that he wanted to prevent a bunch of white people from coming here too, to the United States. Um, and there were issues when Italians came over, when a lot of Germans came over, when Irish people came over, uh, there were issues. So don't, give me this oh it's always the whole time the united states has been around it's just white whiteness has been the centerpiece and the whole uh project uh the whole purpose of the united states is to protect white people no i mean if you're using a quote from benjamin franklin about anglo-saxon people specifically uh and and you know washington even writes in his farewell address he talks about the commonalities americans share and one of those things is this anglo heritage that they have which presents itself in the common law, in Christianity, uh, the religion, um, and then the language. And, and these things are the, the glue that binds Americans together. They have enough in common that they're able to function. Uh, multiculturalism, there are some blessings. You get different cuisines, you have different strengths and weaknesses, but it, ultimately it's going, it's ruining the country in, in a way. It's one of the things that's contributing to instability and mistrust. And uh, you can you you can have some if you have a, a rate that uh, of immigration that is able to uh, assimilate. Uh, assimilation is really the big key thing in my mind. Um, but when when it's open borders, when it's you know culture doesn't matter, you are going to have problems, and that's what we're in. So the gospel response to all this, what is it? Well, Paul pointed to Jesus' power to reconcile Jews and Gentiles, bitter ethnic enemies as well. Uh, as an example of the power of the resurrection, for he is our peace. And she quotes Ephesians 2.14, who's made both groups into one, uh, breaking down the dividing wall. Of course, this is about the laws contained in ordinances. This is not about bitter ethnic enemies. This is about a group of people who had the law, the Jews, and then the Gentiles without the law, the Mosaic law, the uh, ritualistic laws. So that's what that's about. So she's taking that out of context. Uh, that's the gospel response. Uh, she says, listen to the stories of people who do not share your ethnicity, read books and articles written by them, watch movies about them, um, place ourselves in another's shoes. And, and she says, by doing that, uh, it lowers the presence of unconscious bias. So that's the implicit bias training stuff coming out. That's apparently the gospel response. That's the, that's the thing that bothers me about this book. 
uh, the whole time is that this is part of, this is the gospel. This is the gospel is doing your implicit bias training. Well, you get that on just about every job site. So I don't think those people are giving it to you because they just love Jesus and they're giving you the gospel. Uh, Black Lives Matter. On Black Lives Matter, uh, she supports them. Um, and I'm not going to give you all the quotes here. You can download this uh, in the info section. I'm putting the link. If you're a patron, you get this free, all the references to this. But she says, I'll give you this. While the Black Lives Matter movement is secular in origin, I find its organizing principles quite biblical. And uh, some, some of the stuff is quite, I mean, I'll give you this one. She talks about this church, Metro Hope. And um, the, the, the night there was a decision made not to indict the officer who killed Eric Garner, uh, Metro Hope's community leadership team hosted a transformative group dialogue on race and justice and the sponsored uh, an event. Um, let's see. She says that, okay, uh, the church's... Com- so they sponsored an event to the churches in the church's uh, community garden, uh, hang out at a local coffee shop to help support indigenous businesses or start dialogue among the members of the church's intentional living community. Uh, and she said, this is subverting Babel. To Metro Hope, subverting Babel looks like planting seeds of shalom in the lives of its parishioners through radical community hospitality. So, so this is all what the gospel should look like. Uh, this is what you ought to do. Um, she talks about how she herself went, went to Ferguson and she helped build a bridge between white and uh, multi-ethnic churches and the movements for justice in Ferguson. And and so th- this is marching with BLM. This is part of, I guess, this part of the gospel. It's probably the very good gospel. We should do these things. Other social issues, uh, illegal migration, I'll just read for you some of these quotes. One after another, immigrants shared their stories of family separation due to either either uh, to the migrant experience or to loved ones having been detained during a routine traffic stop, thrown in jail, and deported. Oppression rears its head in different forms in each generation, but in every instance, it attacks families. It wasn't supposed to be this way. On LGBTQ normalization, she says, regarding uh, regardless of what one thinks of LGBTQ relationships, the U.S. Supreme Court's five to four ruling in the case of Obergefell has legalized a new family structure across the country. Still, men, women, and transgender people face the same separation from families and faith communities that they faced before the high court ruling. In my book, Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith, co-authored with Soon Cha Ra, uh, we discern the single greatest sin of the church against LGBTQ people is the lack of recognition of the image of God within them. Uh, on the free market, she says, regardless of one stat- stature within a social hierarchy, the inherent dignity of all humanity and the rest of creation should be protected, served, and cultivated in a public policy. And then she says that uh, regulation is not a bad thing. It is the way governments uh, place limits on the amount of injury to the image of God they're willing to allow while also accommodating economic wealth. So businesses need to be kind of curtailed. Uh, Multiculturalism, she says, in a pluralistic democracy, we cannot impose our conceptions of God on our neighbors through the imposition of any sacred text or on... Listen to this one. We we cannot impose our conceptions of God on our neighbors through the imposition of any sacred text on domestic reform policy. In other words, what she's saying here is we need to have secularism. You can't... The Bible cannot inform decisions made by governments. She says, it is though necessary for all people of faith to draw from our principles to help us engage the world in a way that moves our nation and world towards God's very goodness. Well, I'm sorry, that's just a contradiction. 
if she's saying that you, you can't impose any sacred text on domestic or foreign policy, but then uh, we have to draw uh, principles from our faith to help us engage the world, then, I mean, that's just a, literally a refutation. And that's where like mainline denominations are living right now. Like, oh, I have such a deep faith. Um, yeah, I don't think it applies to you or anything else, but I just, it motivates me. It makes me a good person. Like <laughs> That's all it is. Uh, and then uh, on ecumenicism, she basically says that St. Francis, the, the current Pope, has embodied the values and priorities of Jesus uh, more than any other Pope, I guess, uh, since St. Francis of Assisi. So th- this these are just giving you a flavor for the kinds of issues that Lisa Sharon Harper cares about, and her solutions are baked into her her analysis. And, and so the gospel to, to Lisa Sharon Harper is a mechanism for revolutionary egalitarian social change. It's a Marxist revolution. That's what she wants. She wants st- stuff to be flatlined, hierarchies to be ripped down, America to be brought down a few notches, men to be brought down a few notches. She wants uh, disparities uh, uh, amended and, and destroyed that exist between racial groups. Uh, she wants... Um, and in all of this, this is the big problem with all this, is it's in the name of the gospel. Even if you agree with all her analysis, which you shouldn't, but even if you did, this is all the gospel somehow to Lisa Sharon Harper, because the gospel is about transforming society. And this is what that social transformation should look like. So there are other issues uh, with this book that I want to go over Um one is some of the the blatant kind of heresies that come out of this book, but another is the way that she handles scripture, and then we'll finish up. So let me just do that. First, there seems to be some weird, I don't know if it's panentheism, I don't know what it is, but there's a weird view she has, and I'll, I'll read for you some quotes. She says, among the poorest California farm workers um, have borne the brunt of the fallout from the state's struggle with climate change. Short-term effects of climate change, such as landslides, floods, etc., exert a profound impact on the lives and livelihoods of women. She says um, in Syria, there, there was, uh, they suffered a, a drought, a bad drought, and that triggered an increase in heat. And those conditions caused by climate change uh, made the, the rise of ISIS possible in the region. And, she's, and then she says, when we deprive people of the ability to exercise dominion, and then we exploit the land, the image of God is crushed on the earth. That's pretty serious. So, Basically, when we contribute to global warming, we're causing the rise of ISIS and the oppression of women in California, and we're exploiting the land, and what's happening is the image of God is crushed. We're just crushing the image of God, because God does not reign in that place, and the damage to creation stands as a witness to our rebellion. So God does not reign in that place. If we pollute somewhere, God doesn't reign there. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, his his reign, he's reigning right now. It's going to take a different form in the eternal realm, but he's reigning right now. Um, She says, after Cain committed the first murder on earth, the ground opened up to receive Abel's blood. What a moment. The land itself stood in solidarity against injustice and served as a witness before God against Cain's oppression of Abel. Cain did not care for his brother, but the land cared. And like his parents before him, Cain's relationship with the ground was cursed. Um... So the ground, this is this sort of personification of the ground, of the earth. Uh, she says, injustice to any part of creation affects the whole. Likewise, there is no peace for the whole unless there is peace for each part. So the wellness of each family member benefits the whole. The same is true across generations. 
So, so, so here are what I'm seeing in these quotes. God is limited somehow. He doesn't reign in the place where the land, where there's pollution. We also find here that um, the land, the land has this personification. It cares about things. And then we have that any part of creation, injustice there affects every other part of creation, which just isn't quite true in every circumstance. And so what I'm wondering is why, why is, does she raise up the creation to a level of power and importance that seems to go beyond the creator? The creator is helpless. It doesn't, can't reign in a place where his creation is being so destroyed uh, that, um, that the creation is almost like a human. It has this caring thing going on in that, uh, th that you, it's this like one kind of being. You, you uh, I guess, do something bad in one area, it's going to affect everything. It, it sounds like something a, a panentheist would write. It sounds like something you would hear from an Eastern re religion. Uh, then you have the higher criticism, and this is just throughout it. Uh, she talks about uh, there was the Babylon creation story before Genesis 1. Uh, and she says, most scholars believe that Genesis 1 was the last of four sections of the Pentateuch to be written down. Genesis is the youngest of the first five books of the Bible, likely written just after the fall of the Babylon Empire. At the time, the Hebrew people have been utterly conquered. They're, they were about to establish the nation of Israel, reestablish. In this context, the priests wrote Genesis 1. And this, listen to this. The priests who wrote Genesis 1 were likely attempting to wash off the cultural and spiritual rags of 70 years of captivity by reinterpreting the Hebrew creation story while commenting on their oppressor's narrative. Well, why even read Genesis then? Who cares? I mean, this is this is what she's saying is that they're they're that that Genesis was it, it basically it's propaganda. <laughs> That's what it is. It's propaganda to the people. It's not based in objective reality. Um, I mean, this just destroys the text. And, and she so much of what she does is based on Genesis, but then she just destroys the text. Genesis two, she says, offers an intimate narr narrative of creation. This is no sweeping epic poem. Instead, we see God get down in the muck with God's hands in the mud. God is ultimately involved in the creation of humanity. This text comes from a different writer than Genesis one. The Genesis two writer is known as the Yahwehist. And this is the theory that the different names for God in the books of Moses were different editors who later came back and wrote different sections depending on the different eras and, and this is a, a, a theory that's been uh, debunked the JEDP theory uh, but uh, there's a book called before Abraham was uh, that debunks this but this is this is higher criticism it just destroys the text there's no reason to believe it that it's history there's it's just simply propaganda written by priests much later for political purposes or social purposes so uh, you could try to save the text by saying, well, there's a higher meaning. Well, where does that meaning come from? These propagandist priests? I mean, not a very compelling uh, argument. So then, um, then she bases most of her book, the spine of the book is on the book. It's the book of Genesis. She uses the book of Genesis to show, uh, to, to, to give an example of what the very good gospel should look like. And so I'll read for you a few quotes. She says, um, so if the point of Genesis 2 is not to provide a strictly factual account of exactly how the universe was made, then what is it? I think it's something more. Okay, so now the, it's not giving us history. The, and the gospel is not about redeeming souls. Genesis isn't about giving us history. Well, what's it about? I believe that the point is to teach us a higher truth about our relationship with God and one another. Okay, what's that? 
It's important to note that God does not obliterate darkness. Rather, God names it and limits it, puts boundaries on it. The boundary is the light. This is the promise of Genesis 1. The darkness is limited by the light. Suffering is not in perpetuity. The light may take generations to come, but it will come. There is always hope. So she starts allegorizing Genesis. Uh, We are not subject to the worst the deep has to offer. Rather, the waters and every creature in them are subject to God. The Hebrew people knew from experience that even Babylon was subject to God. They had been set free from the sea monsters of the Babylonian Empire. So it's just all allegory. It's just a creative imagination can make Genesis whatever Genesis needs to be. Um, and then she, her creative imagination makes Genesis revolutionary. She says, in direct opposition to the prevailing view, the writers of Genesis 1 democratize dignity by redistributing it to all humanity. So there's a redistribution going on, apparently. Did you know that? Genesis 1, there's a redistribution going on where dignity is being redistributed to everyone because everyone's made in God's image. And um, she talks about uh, radah. Radah is not a call to exercise imperial power. This is She's talking about dominion. Radah equalizes power. No one is too low to exercise agency to steward God's creation. Women bear the image of God equally with no distinction in the way they're that image is manifest, they share equally in the call to exercise dominion. So because mankind is given the charge to uh, exercise dominion over creation, even though women, women women are called to be man's helper, that doesn't seem to matter much. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, I think we'll get into that if I'm not mistaken. But she, that she just focuses on, well, because a, a charge was given to uh, to, to exercise dominion, that's an egalitarian uh, e- uh, call for egalitarian equality. That's what that is. Th- this is a creative reading of Genesis. This is a revolutionary reading of Genesis. This isn't a reading that, I mean, point to the Bible scholar, the, the Christian mainstream Orthodox Bible scholar within the past 2,000 years, uh, before the feminist movement, let's say, that, that had this reading. You're not going to find it. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, and love shares power, she says. The Genesis 2 writer doesn't use, I mean, she's not even saying Moses, it's the Genesis 2 writer, doesn't use the word dominion, but clarifies what dominion looks like. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. And the words there are abad and shamar. The Hebrew word for till is abad, which means to serve. The Hebrew word for shamar is, is to protect. So dominion looks like serving and protecting the rest of creation. Here, the writer of Genesis 2 reveals humanity's essential calling. Okay, listen, this is humanity's essential calling to serve and protect the needs, boundaries, and well-being of the rest of creation. Now, um, Abad and Shamar, has there, there's actually a pretty wide range with the way those words are used. In fact, I was taught at Southeastern that it meant to worship and obey. <laughs> that, that tells you how wide of a range these words uh, can mean. But um, I'm fine with keeping and cultivating the garden. Um, that, that man was put into the Garden of Eden to, to manage it, to, be, to, to exercise dominion. The, the man was actually, there's a separation between man and the rest of creation at this point. And, um, and, and so she sees this as, instead of you know, seeing this as man is the top in this hierarchy, it's, it's, she looks at it as man's existence is to serve creation, which becomes like the top. If there is a hierarchy, it's creation. And she says, Genesis 1 and 2 offer a clear picture of the kingdom of God. So this is what the kingdom of God is, apparently. It's it's what we're trying to get back to, is man um, keeping and cultivating the garden, serving and protecting the garden. And and that's what the good gospel is. That's what the whole point of Jesus coming was. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing, 
is getting back to this point. That's the effort. This is something man can't do, though. This is something that God has to step in. God has to step in and do something to reverse the curse. That's the whole point of the gospel. She says, though, that uh, another quote here, what is the substance of shalom? Peace, the word peace in, in, uh, in Hebrew. It, is fundamentally refers, it fundamentally refers to the wholeness and health and to a world in which the outcome of law is social justice. Direct quote. Fundamentally refers to the wholeness and health and to a world in which the outcome of law is social justice. Where has this happened, by the way? This is one of the, 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 one of the things, I need to make this point, one of the things that Christians, the advantage that, in a way, advantage, <laughs> I don't know if that's the word, but one of the things Christians can use to promote this within the church that secularists don't really have as good of a handle on is that Christians can they can believe in a world that has not yet come into existence or a world that used to exist that we haven't ever experienced. They can, they can believe in these eternal realities or these, these promises, these things that haven't happened. And then they can point, they can say, let's go bring that about. Whereas secularists, uh, they, they, they can do that and they do do that, but they don't have the same backing. They don't have scripture or a holy book telling them I mean, they have their versions of that, right? But it's they, they don't think God is coming to, and telling them that, you know, work towards this world, this utopia to come, and it will happen. And and so this, Christians have the field of dreams. If, if we build it, you know, it will come. It, it, will, it will work itself out. It will we'll have a utopia on this earth. And I think that's one of the responses that... Um, that conservatives, political conservatives often give that won't work on Christians as well, or people who have a basic Christian framework. Because conservatives will often say, okay, you want your utopia, give me the example. Give me, show me the socialist utopia or Marxist utopia that exists. Where was it? Was it the Soviet Union? Was it Cuba? Like Argentina? Where, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? And the, the thing is, there every time you point to a Marxist country or a country that's gone through revolutions like this, it always ends up being worse. Every case. It always ends up being uh, they suffer for it, and in the end, there's people who die, and there's economic problems, and there it's just it's terrible, and so that's an effective rhetorical tool that some political conservatives can wield against social progressives and Marxists. Uh, when it comes to Christians, though, or people who believe in this utopian state that's yet to be achieved, they don't have to provide you any examples. They can just say we're we're actually trying to usher in a dream that we have uh, for a better world. And the John Lennon thing makes sense to us because our God told us. So that is one of the things that uh, I think, just a point I wanted to make that why I I think social justice inherently is actually religious. And I've made this point, I don't know how many many times, but it's going to operate on a religious framework of some kind. Basically a Christian heresy. It's going to have to. Uh, because it's n- this isn't collecting data and figuring out the right way forward. This is this is a, an abstract image of what could be in someone's mind being imposed. That's what it is. And if you if it's from the Lord, if it's from if you have a religious justification from it, then th- th- for it, then you can uh, th- then it, that's real motivation. That's that's some serious motivation and some serious. Uh, justification 
for bringing it about. And so one of the reasons I think social justice is inherently religious, and, and we see this here. Uh, and she says um, as well, she says, sin is not about the personal imperfection of the self. Really, sin is not about the personal imperfection of the self. Well, I, I guess that would explain why the gospel isn't about justification from sin now. It's about social um, revolution. She says, rather, sin isn't any act that breaks any of the relationships God declares very good in the beginning. So sin, even though God says, be perfect for I am perfect, even though we are given a law that we can't keep, uh, it's not about the imperfection of the self. It's just, it's, it's, this is a human-centered sin. This is the sin that only sees itself as wrong um, in relation to how it affects human relationships. So it's not about offending a holy, righteous God with a standard. It's about uh, affecting our relationships that God declared very good. It's our relationships with creation and each other. When those relationships are disrupted, we're not living at God's best potential. Therefore, that's sin. So the sins, uh, sin can be discovered through finding out what kinds of consequences we're suffering as the result of broken relationships. I mean, this is totally an unorthodox view of sin. And it, it would make no sense of the true gospel if that's what that, this really is. Um, now, there's some truth to the fact that sin separates us from God and it separate, and it breaks up relationships, but that's not that's, that's a byproduct. It's not fundamentally what sin is. She says, we are about to embark on a pilgrimage towards healing and restored relationships, which is nothing less than a powerful encounter with the very good gospel. So if you want to know what the very good gospel is, what's the gospel of Lisa Sharon Harper? It's a pilgrimage towards healing and restored relationships. I mean, I, I would want to know, are there people that aren't Christians who are on this path of healing and restored relationships? That's a legitimate question. If so, I mean, do they have the gospel? She talks about family hierarchies as well in Genesis and that uh, she asked people to reflect on their family dynamics. In what ways are the dynamics most like the Genesis 1-2 picture of equal dominion? In which relationships do you experience protection, servanthood, and encouragement? In which do you experience domination, jealousy, lack of communication, separation, and loss of hope? She says, every person was created with the command and capacity to exercise the Genesis dominion, which meant, which meant means to steward or in modern times to exercise agency or to lead. To diminish or ignore the ability of humans to exercise dominion is to diminish or ignore the image of God in them. So listen to that. To diminish or ignore the ability of humans to exercise dominion is to diminish or ignore the image of God in them. What does that even mean? I mean, does that mean if you don't want someone to get a promotion at work to, I mean, exercise dominion that you don't think that they're made in the image of God? I mean, she's connecting things that don't shouldn't be connected. We're all made in the image of God, regardless of our capacities. And, and this is one of the problems I see with so much of the modern social justice stuff. And you see this all over conservative Southern Baptist um, theology as well today, because you hear all these conservative Southern Baptists talking about labor relationships or immigration. Uh, and and they, they say that, well, like we're denying the image of God in someone. Um, I'm sorry, if you building a wall or wanting only legal immigrants to come in or wanting to limit the amount of people to come in, that doesn't mean you're denying the image of God in someone. But that's the kind of language Russell Moore's been using for years. And it is to diminish or ignore God's image on earth, she says. The fastest and surest way to diminish the ability of humans to exercise agency is through poverty and or oppression. So if you are <laughs> try, if you are causing poverty, even indirectly, I guess, uh, then you are denying the image of God in someone. That's what that is. Um, th these are leaps and jumps 
that that just simply don't need to be made. Uh, she says, now which relationships seem to diminish the image of God in you? And these are instructions she gives. Uh, pray, meditate, um, invite your creator to hover over the deep in those relationships. This is total allegorizing of Genesis. Invite God to speak light, love, life, and hope into your soul. Um, she'll restore the image of God within you. And uh, she says, Brown, a person she quotes, Brown recommends four practices to strengthen resilience. Recognize shame and understand the triggers. Practice critical awareness, reaching out, speaking shame. So it's all about the minimization of shame. And the reason I call this anthropocentric Genesis is because it all becomes about her. It all becomes about humans. It all becomes about human relationships. God's left out of the picture now. Uh, it's all about these broken relationships with creation, with each other. And um, it's all about trying to get out from under shame. It's all about God. God's going to take away those sea monsters in your life. That's a direct quote from her. She literally has a section in the book called We Are Worthy. I mean, it's mankind's good. And, and so... This is, and that's my last slide for this three-part series here, but the, the bottom line here is all the things that I talk about in Christianity and social justice, religions and conflict, you see it all in this book pretty much. You see um, a, a false gospel. You see the fact that uh, sin is redefined and it's, it's anthropocentric. It's man-centered. Man is ultimately good. Man is going to create a utopia on this side of heaven and on this earth. We're going to build it ourselves. Um, non-Christians can participate apparently in this gospel work. Um, it's all uh, focused on the achievement of left-wing Marxist uh, causes for egalitarian equality. You don't even see abortion mentioned in the book. It's it's that's that's frankly stunning to me. At least you could have tried to do the evangelical thing and like include abortion. She doesn't even do that. Uh, it's. It's a um, it, it's where all the other conservative quote unquote evangelicals are going. They're 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 ending up here, and she'll probably go farther to the left as time progresses. But she's she's in she has a window or a connection into evangelicalism, according to her. She's 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 at Sojourners, which I think still claims evangelicalism somehow, and she's trained quote unquote evangelicals to do community organizing and activism. She this is someone who has. A degree of influence and I think uh, it's this is the the window into where we are headed into what's going to happen here in the next few years next decade this is where evangelicals are going to be they're not going to be evangelical anymore and they might not even have that title it, and I hope they don't <laughs> maybe the conservatives the, the few that are left uh, and I shouldn't say the few there are, there are many who have not bowed down the knee to bail but most of them, without the platforming, without the institutional power, um, they whine about institutional power a lot, the social justice activists, but they're the ones who have it. Uh, you know, they, they may take a different label, the, the Orthodox Christians. But uh, the social justice activists and those who have flirted with this are just by increments. They take more and more steps until eventually you're Elisa Sharon Harper. You're denying the sufficiency uh, of Scripture blatantly. Uh, and, and really the inerrancy of scripture. You're denying core doctrines. God doesn't even have control over his creation. He's relying on us to do something. Uh, our pollution just binds him. He can't, it, it, it gets, it, it bleeds into your Christology and to, to everything, to everything. And, and that's, that's my concern with social justice. It's a false religion, but this is where it leads. And when it's syncretizing Christianity, this is the damage it does. 
one is going to eat the other. Social justice eats Christianity in the long run. So if you want more information about this book, if you have a small group that's going to use it or something, you can go to the info section. I have a link there and available uh, to the patrons. You, you can just get this uh, free of charge. Uh, well, if you're a patron, it's not free of charge, I guess, but you're, you're getting, um, you're getting a copy. If you're someone who's, you know, really, John, I really need it or something, uh, you can message me and, um, and, and, and I will try to send it to you. But uh, my goal in producing this and putting this all together, and you can take whatever screenshots you want, I don't, that's fine. I don't care. Um, I, I, uh, I want people to have the tools in their hands for ha- navigating discussions. And if you have Bible-believing Christians who say, let's do the very good gospel by Lisa Sharon Harper, here you have the tools now to navigate that. And you don't need to even quote me. Uh, hopefully I've helped you think through some of this stuff. Maybe I've, maybe there's things you're, you're thinking that I haven't even thought about, but you have, you at least have the quotes. You have the primary sources, you know where to find things, the page numbers are there. And that's one of the things that I like to do on this podcast is provide that kind of information. So I hope that was helpful. We'll probably get back into some more uh, contemporary things, political things, and um, things related to evangelicalism next week, maybe Southern Baptist stuff. I definitely have a program scheduled uh, or or planned that I want to record about how to evaluate people uh, with discernment, using discernment. So there's a couple things that are in the works, but um, you could you could pray for me. I got a lot on my plate, and uh, this uh, week actually I started filming for another documentary. Uh, this time on a cult, uh, and I'll I'll be I, I won't give any more information about it. I'll I'll release that uh, later on. But um, there's just a lot going on. All good stuff. Um, but I appreciate your support. I appreciate those who uh, do pray for me, and um, God bless. Hope this was helpful. Bye now. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.